The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 16, and it's found on page 1146 in the Church Bibles. 1146. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, The Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. This is the word of the Lord. But let's ask for God's help as we begin. Paul says in chapter 2, that his message and his preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And so, Father, we pray that as we come to hear your word now, that it would indeed be that to us, a demonstration of the Spirit's power. We're conscious, Father, that we look for impressiveness and power in all the wrong places. But we pray, Father, as we hear this message of Christ crucified, that you would meet with us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're heading into the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians. And uh, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you'll know that over these four chapters, Paul has been... Uh, dealing with the divisions in the Corinthian church. Uh, You'll remember back in chapter 1 that Paul's heard a report from Chloe's people that the the church is divided. And on a Sunday, there are different factions, one for Paul, one for Apollos, one for Peter, and one for Christ. And you might be forgiven for thinking as we head into the fourth chapter this morning, haven't we heard enough? I mean, we've spent, we're going to be spending five weeks on these four chapters, and you might be thinking to yourself, well, we get it, Paul. Divisions are bad. Why do we need four chapters on it? I mean, no one likes factions, of course, and 
every church tries to be united around the gospel, but is it really the biggest issue, Paul? Why four chapters on these divisions? Well, today's passage shows us really why it matters uh, to Paul and why it should matter to us. See, today's passage is a bit of a conclusion to this section, and it drives home for us why it is the church should be healthy, why divisions matter so much, why it matters that we get the gospel right. And whether we're part of the church this morning or whether we're uh, on the outside looking in and exploring these things for ourselves, well, this will help us show it why it matters that the church is faithful in every single way. And the way we're going to tackle this is to see the real headline, why it matters. I'm going to spend most of our time on that, so don't get worried that I haven't got on to my points uh, until a bit later. But then we're going to see three things uh, Paul tells them to do in response to what he says. See, why are the divisions so disastrous? Why are the four chapters? Well, the big headline, the big reason comes in verse 16. Have a look down with me at it. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you. Don't you know? You should know, he says. You are God's temple. See, for three chapters, Paul has said what the church is not. He's said that the church is not powerful as the world sees power. The church is not to be wise as the world sees wisdom. But now Paul turns to tell us what the church is. And he says, it is God's temple. Now, this would have been very striking to the Corinthians uh, because Corinth was famous for its temple. Uh, Here's a picture of what's left of the big temple in Corinth. This is the temple to Apollo. And uh, seven pillars are left, but there were 38 you can imagine in the ancient world, this megastructure would have dominated the city. And people would have traveled hundreds of miles, land and sea, to go to this temple and experience something of the divine God, Apollo. But here's the thing, thanks, Sam. That the, the Paul says God doesn't dwell there. doesn't dwell in these big megastructures. He dwells in you. Because God's Spirit is in you, you are the temple of God. This small, seemingly insignificant group of weak, ordinary people, well, they are the place God has chosen to dwell. But it's not just the temple in Corinth Paul's bringing to mind here. Of course, the temple is a big theme that runs through the Old Testament, Um, You'll remember that Solomon, he built the temple, and after he did, a thick cloud filled the temple to demonstrate that God's presence was there with them. So much so that when the temple was later destroyed, uh, it was said that God's presence had left Israel. But now, can you see, that because of Jesus, because of his work on the cross to forgive us, to redeem us, to give us his Spirit... He says, you are that temple. You are 
what the whole of the Old Testament was building towards, having God's presence with you. And this you can see already, can't you? Why this matters to Paul? Why he doesn't, um, he needs to spend four chapters. You can see why the divisions are so disastrous in this church, because if God's presence is meant to be with them, it doesn't make sense to have all sorts of factions and divisions. It matters that they get the gospel right, doesn't it? Because if God's presence is with them, we need to know what that God is like truly. See, here's the thing Paul says, you are God's temple. See, the the divisions, they're not just a kind of bad thing to do for church growth. They're not just a good strategy to uh, help people get on in life. But this all matters because you are God's temple. He has chosen to dwell with you, ordinary people. But there is, of course, a sobering flip side to this of being the temple of God, because I'm sure most of us would have noticed verse 17. Now, in the ancient world, uh, temples were destroyed, but the only reason you would destroy a temple is because you wanted a take on the God and show your might uh, uh, over them. I don't know if you remember, um, it's Sennacherib in um, the book of Isaiah and uh, 1 Kings, uh, where he talks about all the nations he's destroyed, and he talks about defeating their gods, not because he's gone into heaven and had an arm wrestle with them, but because he's destroyed their temples. And Paul says, well, that same logic applies to the church today, except it's not bricks and mortar he's worried about but the people, the temple of God. See, divisions matter because they destroy God's temple. Not getting the gospel, the foundation right, and believing uh, the things of the world, well, that matters because these are the people God has chosen to dwell with, and that is to destroy the temple. This is why, coming to us, we care so much at St. Mary's about what we do and why we do it, what sort of church we are, what sort of church we want to become. Not because we are into kind of church strategies of growth and uh, that sort of thing, but because we care about worshiping God appropriately. We care about being His people. This is why we think carefully about the sort of creature, uh, cre- sorry, cu- culture we create, because we care about uh, reflecting His honor in the right way. And it's why we believe that actually, it's why we care about the church uh, on, the wider, on the wider scene, outside these four walls, because uh, God has chosen to dwell not only in the local church, but in the church around the world. And so it matters, doesn't it, that we play our part in trying to encourage that church in holding to what's true and reflecting God's glory in every single way, because we are God's temple. He has chosen to dwell with us. So that's the big headline. That's why it matters to Paul 
And then what we get in the verses that follow from verse 18 uh, onwards is three implications of being God's temple. Uh, We see here that Paul tells them that because you're God's temple, there's no more looking wise, no more boasting, and no more judging. See, look at what Paul says in verse 18. He says, do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. See, to be part of God's temple is to become a fool. Now, you might read that and think, well, does that mean I lower my IQ or kind of uh, have a brain transplant, if that's possible. But but Paul's not saying that. He's not saying you need to be stupid. He's not saying you don't need to study. Please carry on doing your GCSEs and your A-levels, otherwise I'll be in trouble. Uh, Well, they're already over, aren't they? Uh, But um, he's saying that actually you need to embrace the foolishness of the gospel. We've seen, haven't we, over the last few weeks that that God has set things up purposely so that we can't be proud if we come to Jesus. He hasn't chosen to redeem the world through, as Alex reminded us, Superman or Batman or whatever your superhero of choice is. He hasn't chosen to come with a great army and great demonstrations of divine power. No, how has God chosen to redeem the world? Well, through a carpenter, through the son dying, through a a shameful Roman execution device reserved for the most despised of criminals. That is the way God has chosen to redeem you, to change the universe from its bondage to destruction. The trouble is, for the Corinthians, that ran counter to everything they were for. See, the Corinthian culture, as we've heard over the last few weeks, was a very sophisticated culture, much like our own. We um, loved, uh, they loved wisdom. They loved impressive speakers. The comedy circuit was not uh, stand-up comedians, but stand-up speakers, and they were the elite, and, and they saw a way of, of kind of merging that with the gospel. They thought, well, actually, there are some impressive Christian speakers. Apollos is pretty good. Actually, we can have a cake and eat it. We can have what looks strong in the culture and combine that with the weakness of the gospel. But Paul says, no. See, if you are the temple of God, if you uh, claim to believe this gospel... Well, you've got to embrace the foolishness of this gospel. You cannot be seen as wise and claim to uh, believe the gospel. I remember this battle as a young Christian. Um, I went off to university, and I thought to myself, Christians are stupid. Please don't take offense to that. I did change my mind. But Christians are stupid. And then I I turned up to university, and almost the first night I was there in the student bar, I met Christians at university. I thought, what are you doing here? You know, everyone knows that you can't be thinking and be a Christian. And then a bit later, a friend of mine invited me to church, and would you believe it, there was a university professor speaking at church. There were people 
uh, who were teaching uh, the courses at church and people with PhDs and that sort of thing. I thought, what is this place? And as I looked at the Christian faith and as I spent time at this church, I saw that, oh, wow, this is actually historically credible. There's real evidence for this stuff. It's rational. There's rational reasons to believe this. It's provable. And then I became a Christian. And then I thought to myself in my um, uh, pride, basically, that I'm going to go around and I'm going to convince everyone else it's true because it's intellectually rigorous. But then I found myself pretty quickly on the receiving end of other people thinking I'm stupid. And I wanted to say to them, no, look, people with PhDs come to my church. I've got university professors. But the thing is, people don't see it like that. We want to work hard at presenting things well. And, you know, if you're looking into the Christian faith, I do want to say this is intellectually credible. Come and speak to me afterwards. I'd love to show you why it's historically reliable. But there's still, as much as we do that, there is something that's an affront to our pride. We do need to humble ourselves. We do need to become a fool to believe the gospel. Because it is through the weakness of a cross, not our intellectual capabilities, that God chooses to redeem the world. I wonder if you embrace the foolishness of the gospel like I had to and keep having to. It's very easy, isn't it, to come to a church, even like St. Mary's, where there are, let's be honest, quite impressive people. There are people I know who are leads in their fields. It's very easy to kind of merge that with the weakness of the gospel. But actually, no matter how clever we are, how able we are, all of us need to become a fool so that we may become wise. Well, there's a second reason why we need to respond to being God's temple and uh, a way to respond to being God's temple, and that is no more boasting in verses 21 to 23. Um, You'll remember back in chapter 1 that Paul and Apollos are the kind of celebrities of the day, and people are going around saying, well, I got baptized by Paul, look at me, and other people saying, well, I heard Apollos. Do you remember that sermon? I was there for it. It was wonderful. And Paul says in verse 21, so then, no more boasting about men. He's had enough. This is dividing the church. No more boasting. But interestingly, notice how he makes the argument here. Notice what he says in verse 22. You might expect him, just before we get there, you might expect him to say, look, no more boasting about these guys. Apollos is pretty rubbish, or I'm uh, nothing. Don't worry about me. But notice what he does say in verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future, all are yours. See, the the Corinthians, they've got a kind of scarcity mentality where they think they've got to kind of prove themselves by latching themselves onto a particular leader. And Paul says, look, you haven't got the gospel. The gospel means that all things are yours anyway. Imagine a group of children being given Hamley's toy store to enjoy. Imagine the doors opening and, and then all these children running through, and there's one little boy who thinks to himself, do you know, I'm going to get a toy for myself. And he walks over to the Lego stand, and he grabs a little Lego man 
And then he grabs the Lego man and he goes around the store saying, this is mine. This is my Lego man. Look at this. Look how impressive he is. His head comes off and everything. You can put a beard on or, or whatever. That's Playmobil, sorry. Uh, but um, you imagine the other children would be going around saying, what do you want about? This whole store is yours. You don't need to go around boasting about a silly Lego man. And Paul says to the Corinthian church something similar. Have you not realized that because of Jesus, everything is yours? The world or life or death, the present or the future, all things are yours through him. See, why is it you and me find that temptation to boast? Why do we not think that we can just be good enough on our own? It's because of a insecurity, isn't it? Let's be honest. I find that I'm tempted to boast in who I know or what I know or what I've done because I don't feel I can kind of make myself enough on my own. And so we find ourselves talking about how much we earn or in a conversation dropping in uh, where we holiday or where we live or who we know because we hope that as we're talking to that person, they go, well, you're an impressive person. But the gospel removes all that, doesn't it? See, the gospel says to us, look, you're not impressive because you're impressive to others. You don't get your worth from the bank balance or your postcode. You get it from the fact that Christ has died for you. And because he died for you, he sees you as precious, infinitely loved, And so you don't need to go around boasting in the celebrity preacher or the person you know or how much you've done or what summer camp you've been on or what church you got baptized in because Christ has died for you. And because of that, all things are yours. See, I hope no one here at St. Mary's feels that pressure to make a name for themselves I realize there are different jobs in the church and God's given us different gifts. And one of the things we try and do here at St. Mary's is to encourage us to to use those gifts wherever God has given us opportunity. But it'd be very easy, wouldn't it, to think that actually because I'm not doing particular jobs in a church, that actually maybe I'm not as important as other people. And it might be even tempting to boast in what we do or what responsibilities we're given But actually, the moment we put our trust in Lord Jesus, we need to not boast in those things. There's no pressure to make a name for ourselves. We're all valuable because Christ has died for us. So no more boasting, Paul says. And finally, and more briefly, no more judging. This this boasting in uh, leaders has got a a bit of an unpleasant underside, because not only are they boasting in the leaders they're following, they're then judging and looking down their noses on the ones they're not. And in chapter 4, we see that really they have, a lot of them, rejected the Apostle Paul and his authority. They have judged him, or as he puts it in verse 3, put him in their court of opinion. And so he says, there can be no more judging. Look at verse 3. I've been given, sorry, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. 
My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. See, Paul here says, I don't even judge myself. This is not kind of Paul, you know, being arrogant and thinking that, you know, he's got nothing to be worried about. But, but he says, look, I'm such a poor judge of myself. My, my conscience is clear. You know, we always give us a kind of easy ride, don't we, when we come to judging ourselves. And that's not the point. The gospel isn't about whether we think we're bad or whether we think we need forgiveness. We recognize that God sees all. He sees the motives of the heart. And so Paul says, I don't even judge myself because I can't know my own heart. And so if I can't judge myself, well, who are you to judge me? If I, you know, in my own body cannot work out the motives and why it is I do certain things, well, we don't need you, Corinthian church, to be doing that judging for you. Wait until the Lord comes. But interestingly, notice where he finishes. He says this, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and who expose the motives of men's heart. Just stop there for a second and just think to yourself, how's he going to finish this verse? He will expose what's hidden in darkness and expose the motives of men's hearts, and he will condemn, he will judge, he will bring his vengeance on you as a church. No, what does Paul say? At that time, each will receive his praise from God. See, it's not that the Corinthians are kind of too lax in their judgment. It's that they're too strict. It's that they're not seeing the generosity that God gives. And so they're looking down their nose on Paul because they haven't got how generous God is in the gospel. See, they're using their judgment in a way that is far harsher than Jesus himself. Because Jesus knows we're weak, because he knows we're fallen, because he knows exactly what you and me are like. He has died for us. He has forgiven us. He has completely cleansed us. There's no surprises with Jesus. You know, nothing's going to catch him out and think, well, actually, you're worse than I thought you were. Actually, he's done that so that people like you and me might receive praise from God. Of course, that's not praise for ourselves, not praise that we can turn to our own advantage, but praise that we then turn to Christ. So there's no more judging because Christ has forgiven Paul. He's forgiven you and me. See, why does this all matter? Why is it we're spending four or five weeks on these four chapters and, you know, you might be thinking, Uh, We've got it now. Well, hopefully we have. Well, it's because you and me are God's temple. And so because of that, there can be no more looking wise. We're to become fools. No more boasting. Everything's ours already. And no more judging. Because God has done that already in his son. Let's pray. We praise you, our Heavenly Father, for this great reminder of your generosity to us through the Lord Jesus. 
that we are your temple. Please help us, Father, to put to death anything that doesn't reflect that in the way we act and are with one another. And please help us, Father, to rejoice in what we have through the Lord Jesus. For we ask in his name. Amen.